Content discussed on this podcast may be triggering for some individuals. So if you feel like today you can't quite handle it, that's totally fine. You can press pause and come back another day. Remember, we're always going to be here. And if you need immediate help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Everybody, welcome to episode four of If You Don't Mind. I am your host, Madeline Charrington, and as usual, I am super stoked that you're all here with me on this wonderful journey that we call life. <laughs> God damn, I need to stop being so lame. Um, I don't know if anyone else did this when they were a kid. Um, the whole like first is worst, second is best, third is the one with the hairiest chest, and fourth's the golden eagle. I mean, there's variations on this, you know, a lot of them, um, but this is the Golden Eagle episode. It's number four. How exciting. And for number four, the Golden Eagle episode, we have a wonderful Golden Eagle guest. Uh, their name is Dylan. They are hilarious and very, very sweet and kind and just, just I think this just seems to be a common theme with this podcast, but a genuinely nice person. I'm really excited that Dylan said yes to being on this podcast, not only because they have a really interesting um, experience with uh, mental illness, specifically anxiety and depression when they were quite young, uh, that left them feeling quite alienated from, from their peers, but also because Dylan has been amazing at helping and supporting young queer people who are experiencing homelessness. And I thought it would be amazing for Dylan to come on and also talk about that because I think, yes, we want to hear people's stories, but we also want to hear about how we can help and how we can make a change. So that was fantastic getting to hear exactly how that's happening in Australia and all the different things we can do to support people who are currently living rough or don't have a place to live. There is a little bit of a trigger warning here. If you yourself have experienced homelessness and this is something that you don't feel like hearing about today, that's totally fine. You, you can press pause and come back when you're feeling up to it. That's totally fine. That's our motto here. But I think you're really going to enjoy Dylan's story and all the things that they're doing in the community to enact change and help people. It's just an it's just a really inspiring interview. It's what we need from our young people these days. So sit back chill out, take a load off, and let's get into it. This is Dylan. I hope you enjoy it. So it'll be super chill. If there's like anything at all, you kind of feel like, oh, fuck, I didn't want to say that. Just flag it with me. Mm-hmm. Do you have notes? Oh, I was, no, <laughs> I was just thinking I can. Okay, cool. So just bring the mic a little bit closer to your mouth and make sure you speak into it. Mm-hmm. And you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. I can hear you perfectly. Um, hi, Dylan. Hi, Maddie. Oh, my God. It's Saturday and you're here. I am. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming in. Also, thank you for letting me reschedule this. I had like the flu. Aww. I was so sick. And I was like, fuck, I can't 
can't, <laughs> can't do this to Dylan again. Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate you coming in. Yeah, no worries. I'm really excited to be here with you. Ooh, that's amazing. How is life going for you at this moment in time? Life is pretty hectic, but really exciting. I'm about to finish my seventh year of uni, which is also my final year of uni. Okay, so wait, let me get this straight. Is this the same degree? <laughs> yes, it's the same degree. So I've been doing two degrees, but it's taken six and a half years to do them. That's okay. Yeah. That happens. It has happened. Yeah, well, I, it's been in conjunction with part-time work and a lot of other volunteer stuff, so I'm really glad that it's taken this long. It's just getting to the point now where I really want to finish. Oh, so. my God. How sick of you uh, sick of you of just, like, assignments and exams? Very sick of them. <laughs> I, like, I did my undergrad and I also did my master's, which was only a year, and I remember at the end of my master's I was just like, never again. I don't want to write another, like, essay ever again. I'm already planning, like what my Snapchat and Facebook posts are going to be. Like, last class. I'm just, (laughs) I'm dreaming about it. I'm so excited. And you know what? You'll probably also have, like, okay, I have nightmares still about university. I still have them about the HSE. Same. (laughs) Oh, God, same. I'm just like, I remember a few nights ago I had a dream where I was late to my modern history exam. And then I got there and I couldn't remember any of the quotes. You know how you have to, like, memorize quotes? Yes. And I was just like, well, I'm failing. I'm not going to go to university. <laughs> was, I can't believe you still have those stress dreams. I think that's a testament probably to the, the fact that things need to probably change. Yes. Yeah. They, incre- they they cause so much anxiety that people are still having traumatic dreams. Yeah. It's not a good later. sign. No. I, I finished the HSE in 2010. Like, that's a long time ago. <laughs> Canal. It's fine. It's fine. Okay, Dylan. So you're here because we're going to talk a little bit about your experiences with depression and anxiety. So I guess my first question is, when did that all kind of start? I think I remember you telling me it was like high school that this started kind of happening. Talk me through that experience. Yeah. So high school is when it when it kind of started happening. I, it could have possibly started even earlier than that, but that's definitely when I started to realize and be able to identify what it really was. I did eventually, I guess, become comfortable enough telling my family about that as well. And then I got to see a psych, which was really useful for me. Um, But by that time, I'd kind of already struggled with depression for many years. uh, And anxiety was something that I'd struggled with since I was like really young. Mm. Um, For me, it was for me, I, I, I suppose my depression was much more of a temporary thing, whereas anxiety is something that I've continued to live with for like, well, up until the present time, it's just now that I understand what it is and I've been able to live with it and, and yeah, just start to understand my relationship with anxiety, it's become something that I've been able to be really proud that I've been able to live with it really well and be able to um, understand the way in which it impacts me. So it's become something that has affected me in a negative way, much less, but mm. it's still something that I have to deal with and have to have those tools and supports to make sure that I can deal with it properly. Of course. Yeah. And like when your anxiety kind of your symptoms started happening, mm. what was that like for you? What was it categorized by at the time? So it was predominantly social anxiety for me. Um, so for example, one of the most terrifying things for me was just standing at a crossing, at a street crossing. Mm. Um, if there were other people around me on the same side as me, I was wondering, are they looking at me? Do they think I'm standing weird? Are my hands in the wrong place or the right place? People across the street, are they looking at me? All the people in the cars. So that just like standing still, I felt like I was this glaring, like there was something obviously wrong with me that would be glaringly obvious to everybody or yeah, like I just couldn't belong. I just didn't understand social cues and things like that. So I just felt, I just felt like I was 
some alien that everyone would be able to see me and know that I was some weird alien. And I think a lot uh, that probably stems in part from bullying that I did go through a lot at high school and in primary school. Um, but I think it just, that was probably like, that's probably like the most like egregious example, because if I was walking somewhere from A to B, I felt like I was like semi-invisible. Like people wouldn't notice me because I'm walking. But when I'm standing still, I felt like I was just so obvious to everybody. I was terrified chatting with strangers, even people that I knew. I kind of would always repeat conversations in my head and like would be really slow to respond to people because I was always wondering about what, what can I say? And is, am I saying it in the right way or the wrong way? Um, and so that really negatively impacted my ability to make friends, to maintain relationships with people. And that led to, I guess, a, a spiral, like it kind of was like a spiral because mm. it was self-perpetuating. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. When you were a kid, were you, were you very anxious then? Like when you were four or five years old, like going into primary school? Oh, I can't even remember. <laughs> I can remember, like, I, I think I was always been so self-aware because I can remember, like, being very scared of everything. Mm. But did you kind of just wake up one day and realise, oh, I I don't know how to, like, communicate with other kids my age? I think it was eventually a realisation, and I think that realisation happened in high school. So I think, I think I always felt different from other people, and I was bullied a lot by other people. And I remember, even though I don't remember being anxious per se, I know that everyone always classified me as a shy kid when I was really young. Mm. But yeah, I think that kind of realization later on that actually, I don't think other people feel the same way that I do and have the same kind of fear of other people that I do came when I was in high school. Mm. And you said to me that you actually thought potentially you were on the autism spectrum. Yeah. So why did you think that? I think it was because of Dr. Google. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Google. No. And well, anxious, anxious people should not be able to Google anything. <laughs> yeah, because that's it's even worse when you have anxiety, I know. isn't it? <laughs> You're like, oh, it's all me. I have everything. I'm dying. <laughs> I'm dead tomorrow. <laughs> um, yeah, but I did. There, there are, I think, some kind of similarities in things that are characterized as symptomatic of being on the spectrum and things that are characterized as symptomatic of anxiety. Um, and that kind of, I was able to help distinguish those when I did go to see a psych and they helped me after a few sessions, they helped me um, to identify that what I was dealing with was actually anxiety and wasn't something to do with being on the spectrum. I also, my best friend is also on the spectrum. So that kind of, because we resonated so well together, I kind of felt like, oh, maybe that, you know, maybe, maybe that does help explain it as well. Mm. Um, now we're just great buds. <laughs> And when you went to that psych for the first time and you started talking about, you know, your symptoms and your experiences, what was that like? Was it like quite healing? Oh, at first it was terrifying. <laughs> it was like even worse than normal anxiety because it felt like I actually had to, well, it was like having to break down all these barriers that I put up and then kind of reveal all of these like thoughts that I knew were, would sound weird to somebody else. Um and I don't know, like, I know, I knew that this person was a professional and they'd have heard it before and everything, but it didn't make it any less scary for me. But once I did start going a number of times and he started giving me, uh, I guess, exercises to do and, and things to do whenever I felt anxious to write down how I was feeling, what was going on around me. And he's, he made me do it. He said, like, you know, every time you feel anxious. And I was like, I'm just going to be writing <laughs> constantly. I was like, <laughs> he doesn't understand. <laughs> But that in itself helped me to realize that I was, a lot of these thoughts that I was having were, yeah, I guess that they, that they were irrational and that 
I was worrying about things in a lot of cases that either I shouldn't be worrying about in the first place or that even if, you know, something, you know, even if I was standing at the, the crossing and someone did look at me and be like, oh, that person's standing weird. Like, what's the worst that could happen as a result of that? <laughs> no, that makes sense. Yeah. I think I've done that um, that exercise as well. Like, it's quite classic of CBT where they're like, write down the thing you're scared of. Mm. Okay, how likely is this to happen? Mm. And you're like... Okay, not likely. Mm-hmm. And they're like, and if it did happen, what would you do? And you're like, oh, I guess I would deal with it. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> I was being ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and until you write down on paper, you're like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing in the world. I don't know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But then when you actually kind of get it down on paper, you're like, oh, okay, that's a ridiculous thought. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to die or I'm not. no one cares what I'm doing. And anxiety is really like sneaky because it convinces you that everybody does care mm. and that all these things are happening. And it's like, it's super exhausting to have that brain. Yeah. I'm sure you've had like similar experiences. Yes, definitely. Ugh, when you like get home, you're like, that was just like, a, that was so much effort just to like navigate through the world mm. without completely losing my mind. And then you, and then it takes, when you do get home at the end of that, it takes away so much energy you could be putting into something else. I know. Yeah. You want to like you know, hobbies and stuff, you know, you want to do things. Instead, you just lie there and you hate yourself. Ugh. And how were your family when you kind of came to them and you were like, I don't well, did you come to them and say, I'm seeing a psych and this is what I'm doing? They helped me to find a psych. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they were very helpful. I can't remember exactly the context in which it came up. I think I might have even mentioned like being on the spectrum as a possibility and that led them to take me to see certain people. Um, yeah, I can't remember the exact way that it came up, but I was really grateful for, yeah, the fact that they helped me to go see the psych mm. that many times. Like, it wasn't, I know that it was a big, like, difficulty for my family because we're not very, you know, don't have a lot. Um, so, so financially, they really helped you. Yeah. So I was really grateful for that opportunity. And at the time, I didn't really th- think it was going to help me very much. But having come out of it, I realized that, you know, that made such a big difference to me. Mm. And moving forward. That's interesting how you you mention the whole financial side, because I think there are so many people out there who probably are in similar experience, like having similar experiences to us, but just cannot physically afford to go seek help. Like, Mm. yes, you can get like the mental health plan, which will let you see like a psychologist for like 10 sessions or whatever. Mm. But if you've got like a super complex, you know, mental health disorder going on, it's just like crazy how inaccessible it is. Mm. Like, I just, that's something I think about a lot. Is that something like that you're concerned about? Like the fact that young people just don't have that access? I'm definitely concerned about that. And I think, um, I think having gone through struggles with mental health and mental illness and being able to go and get help from a psych and other experts being able to know how much that affected me and changed everything for me and made so much stuff possible that wouldn't have been possible had I not gone in the first place. Um, it makes me really sad that a lot of people don't have that opportunity or they can only go for such a small, a short amount of time. Mm. Yeah, I think it's definitely something that needs to be looked into. How can we make this much more accessible to people? And I know yeah. there are some advances happening but there's yeah still a lot to be done. Yeah, it just seems ridiculous to me that you can have your your condition dealt with in 10 sessions. Mm. And especially as well when it comes to like getting on medication, was that something that you like a path that you went down? No, so I haven't actually used medication before. I've still so I still do experience anxiety and sometimes when it's when there are periods where it's particularly bad, I've thought, you know, maybe that's something to look into, but I haven't as of yet use medication. Mm. Yeah. So I've used a lot of other different mechanisms and I've got a lot of supports, thankfully. Um, so I'm very lucky in that regard. 
Have you used anything a little bit different? No. No, no. no um, intense meditation and like yoga retreats and things like that? No, nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> I do um, do some quick meditations. So yeah. I like to do walking meditations, get out of the house, go for a walk. I like to do little like 10 minute, five minute meditations. And I do um, have a Netflix playlist, which is like my meditation playlist. So I'll play it um, and just stop and like tune into it. Um, yeah. And there's like, I've got a new Google home at the moment, which I love. And I, one of the things I do when I'm feeling super stressed is I'm just like, Google, like help me relax. And it just plays nice sounds, like natural sounds. And it's just great to tune into it. And like, even if I'm focusing on something, if I'm like, if I've got distracting thoughts, then it just is a way to just limit them by just like thinking about this, like, that's a nice cicada sound. (laughs) And like continuing on with whatever I'm doing. Doesn't Google Home scare you? The fact that it has access to all your information. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> it is, yes, very convenient. And I do like the idea of being able to go home and be like, Google, you know, chill me out. But also, like, can it get all my information? <laughs> that concerns me. I mean, I will, I for one welcome our robot overlords. <laughs> <laughs> I do not. There's something, there's like that creepy movie where, like, the house, like, kills the guy. I haven't seen this one. <laughs> I swear there's a movie where they have, like, they've parodied it, parodied it. I can't speak. They've, like, made um, reference to it in a Simpsons episode where it's, like, the house. Oh, I've seen the Simpsons yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> the house is, like, has a brain or something and can control everything and then it, like, murders the guy because it's in love with the wife. I may have completely made that up. It's definitely in the Simpsons. I mean. <laughs> Therefore, it must have been a pop culture reference. I mean, yeah, but Ooh. if, like, I guess. If I'm going down with Google Home taking control, like, so is everyone else. So, <laughs> Oh, God. It we'll just, all go down together. It's it just fine. stresses me out. It stresses me out. Okay, so you're in high school. You've seen a psych. You're on the road to recovery. And then you move to Sydney. Is that yes, correct? that's right. Okay. What was that like? Up, up route, So where were you originally living? You don't tell me if you don't want to. That's right. I was living in Richmond, which is um, – like at the foot of the Blue Mountains. And I was going to school in the Blue Mountains in Moramu. And so, yeah, I moved out, kind of first opportunity I got. I really wanted to live independently. um, And I I was going to study at UNSW. So I thankfully sent a link offers, um, some extra support if you're moving a long distance to get to uni. So I kind of, I moved out with a little bit of like $1,000 savings that I had. Um, Moved into a place on campus, which was very expensive, but... Yeah, I don't um, know how you afforded that. That's crazy. Well, um, it was quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did get a job pretty much straight away, which was really great, except I lost it pretty soon afterwards. Oh, why? Um, what happened? Well, I th- it was it was kind of like a new startup, and oh. pretty much every everyone got fired and replaced so i was yeah just again once again went down with with everyone it's fine um but then yeah it took me quite a long time to find another job and thankfully the place where i was staying was lenient and they understood that i was struggling with with a bad situation but i was always had this fear in my mind of i'm going to have to move back to uh richmond i really didn't want to do that and i you know i i was kind of living by me goring noodles like for every meal it was pretty bad so yeah but eventually I did find another job and things were able to get back on track um but it was very different I kind of felt like I had to go back into the closet in a way really yeah because I had I had come out um as queer at high school 
And there were all kinds of like problems, but also some victories and successes and some great moments with that as well. Um, but then going back, going to uni, I was moving in with, you know, into a uni accommodation with a bunch of strangers who I didn't know. And those people were often exchange students. So they came and went pretty quickly. So I could never get like develop a strong rapport with them. Mm. So I was always afraid of like, do I, I've, I've got to hide everything about who I am. I can't bring anyone home. I can't. It was a big, it was, I was just totally scared of coming out and then being bullied out of my home where I was staying. Fuck, that's intense. Um, yeah, but thankfully there was a group on campus I found which is called the Queer Collective, and most campuses have them. They're essentially a group of queer students, and I I, I don't know, like I, I didn't know that there were so many <laughs> queers in the world. And then I went to uni and found the Queer Collective, and I was like, oh my goodness, there are so many of us, and it was great. And I got to learn a lot about the history of queer people I didn't know very much about at all. I got to meet some amazing role models. Um, and, yeah, it really transformed my life completely after that. So, That's beautiful. Yeah. And you didn't feel like you had to hide anymore? Uh, well, after the first year of living on campus, I moved um, in with some friends from the Quick Collective. Oh. So, no, <laughs> didn't have to hide exactly who you wanted to be, like, 24-7. Yeah, exactly. Oh. And it was so freeing. Dude, of course. Of course. And, like, at this moment in time, how is your anxiety? How was it, like, kind of uprooting your life, going through all this change, trying to figure out where you stood kind of in the world in Sydney at uni? How was that? What was that like for your anxiety and, and just your general mental health? It was pretty intense. So that was a period where I, um, I, I guess the whole of year 12 and then that whole first year of uni were, was very stressful because I kind of felt like if I screwed up, it would really like take away all the opportunities I had to succeed later in life, which is totally wrong. Yes. But at the time, <laughs> that's what everyone, everyone at that age feels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I was pretty terrified of, you know, like I said, running out of my money, having to be evicted, um, someone finding out that I'm queer, getting bullied. I was terrified that I wouldn't be a good uni student because I had no idea what being a uni student was like. Would mm. I be able to balance everything? Um, yeah, so it was all pretty intense. And I remember that was a particularly difficult period for me. And there was one point, especially in that first year of uni, where I had um, I had lost my computer. I had lost my phone, which had broke. I'd, my partner at the time just broke up with me and I had no money. And I felt like this is like... I kind of was. I kind of felt like I had to face an ultimatum and be like, I either give up on everything now, or I recognize that this is the lowest point I'm going to get, and I can only go like up from here. And I decided to <laughs> take the more positive route. Oh my god, I'm so happy you did. <laughs> yeah, and that kind of was a big epiphany for me. And since then, I've never felt that dark. Like that was again like another spiral. Like my like everything just kind of went completely dark for me then, and then I kind of rebounded off it. And I've never gone back to that, you know, I've struggled, but I never got back to that point where I felt like I have nothing because I know that I've had nothing. I've been to the point where I've almost, you know, lost everything and it's, I've bounced back. So can only get better when it's I really love bad. That. That's a beautiful sentiment. And I'm sure that kind of helps you constantly when you're in dark periods mm. to like remind yourself that you were there and now you're here. Exactly. So if you go back again. You just go forward again. Exactly. Yes. Oh, I love that. Okay. And so like where you are now in your life, do you feel like do you feel like you're whole within yourself? Do you feel like you've reached a place where you reached a point where you feel well? 
Yeah, I definitely feel much happier about where I am than before. And in fact, I would say probably last year or the year before, I just I had like another epiphany where I realized oh, so many epiphanies. I know. <laughs> But no, this is another really big one where I realized that I actually was at that point the happiest that I'd ever been. Yet I had gone through in that particular moment and a lot of other really stressful things. Um, Like my, my, I again had no money again because I'd moved out and a whole lot of stressful things had happened and maxed out my credit card, probably in a worse financial position than I was before. I think I remember you telling me about this. Yes, yes, yes. It was a few years ago. Um. But then I didn't feel that huge amount of stress and depression and anything that I felt before. And that's for a lot of reasons. But I think probably one of the biggest reasons is, again, that fact that I'd rebounded from such a difficult thing in the past. And I had become a leader in my community. So I had become um, a student leader for the LGBT community, particularly not just in at my campus, but then moved on to a national role and um, started a national campaign to end youth homelessness, particularly for LGBT people. And that was a, yeah, I don't know. If you think back about where I was in high school and all the things I was dealing with then and not being able to even talk to strangers and stuff, thinking about where I had got to like I, it was not even something I even thought of was on my radar mm. um, back when I was in high school at all. So, yeah, I don't know. I'd been able to become this person that was, you know, be, I guess being suppressed by all of this other stuff in the past. So, yeah, I still go through periods where I go through some really stressful stuff. And this year in particular has been a bit more stressful than previous years because it is my final year. And we've changed our, like... The uni I go to has kind of changed to a trimester system oh. and <laughs> they're kind of cramming all the con in into 10 weeks. That's a big topic. It is. Let's not go there. <laughs> we won't. Um, but, you know, like grad jobs and everything, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting and a stressful time. But I, at the same time, I still feel like when I think about my future, I just think of like, I, I'm just excited. I'm just excited and eager to get there and oh, to live. I love that. Yeah. I must say, like, I, I think I met you maybe five, no, four or five years ago? Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. And you just, like, look the most well you've ever looked. Oh, thanks. Like, you just look <laughs> like, I mean, sometimes physically you can also see when someone is doing well mentally and you just, like, you're just glowing <laughs> and you just look really stylish and you just look like you know what you're doing. Oh, thank you. And I mean that. I'm just, I'm not saying that you didn't before. But it's <laughs> really cool to see people how they like mature and grow and get to this really good space in their in their life and it's just like yeah looking at you I'm just like I can see it I can see it (laughs) oh no I do mean it um I think having you here is also a really good opportunity to talk about youth homelessness Mm -hmm. particularly in the LGBTQI community um I guess what I wanted to ask is so like how do people become homeless how do what what's what's usually the reason why young people, especially people in the queer community, what are some of the reasons they become homeless or displaced? Mm, mm. It's a really good question, and there are so many reasons why. I think the media often tends to focus on things that, you know, would generate a negative reaction. So things like, oh, homeless people are drug addicts, or homeless people, they're just lazy, or they choose to live like that. Mm. And that's extremely damaging and just wrong. Like, it's such a minority of cases. And even where people have are dealing with, you know, drug and, and substance abuse and that kind of thing, that doesn't mean they should be homeless. Like, that's what angers me most about that stuff. Like, just because people have, you know, you know, gone struggled with these, these kinds of things doesn't mean they're, like, less, uh, what's the word, less, I guess, 
that they shouldn't have human rights. Like, like it just doesn't deserving. make yeah yeah mm. that's the word I was looking for. Thank gotcha. you. Gotcha. Um, but there are a lot of other issues, uh, a lot of other reasons why people become homeless, and for LGBTQI youth especially. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the time it's um, unaccepting family and um, or unaccepting uh, landlords and and things like that. Not being really able- landlords. Sometimes landlords, if they if they have particular views, will try to find. Will, they'll try to find a way. So there are some dodgy landlords out there. Fuck. Um, unfortunately, um, and that's not just not just queer people, but you know, if your landlord wants you out, unfortunately, they there are a lot of ways that they can try to get you out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can be super dodgy in doing that. But I think, yeah, unfortunately, people being kicked out of home for just being who they are is very common. Um, if if you're queer and you haven't experienced it, most likely you know someone who's experienced it. And unfortunately, some of the supports that exist for people who um, are experiencing homelessness either are run by religious organizations, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And a lot of religious organizations are accepting of queer people, but there can can be a barrier. Mm -hmm. So especially if you're a queer person who's had negative experiences with religion, you probably don't want to go and reach out to religious organizations Mm. um, because you'll feel kind of what I felt moving into that home at uni, except on a much worse scale, because you might even feel like there is a bias, not that there might be. Mm. Um, but there's also some, for example, for trans women, a lot of women's shelters will unfortunately discriminate against trans women. Um, so those people won't be able to find support in, you know, in women-only shelters, which can be a very important thing, especially if that person is fleeing something like domestic violence. Um, so there are unfortunately a lot of different reasons why people experience homelessness. And we know that the cost of living is increasing and yet you know, supports like Centrelink and and minimum wage aren't going up. So it's just in general worse for young people anyway. Mm. Um, Yeah. So that's some of the biggest reasons. Yeah, because I guess a lot of people do have that that opinion that people who, when they're homeless, are because of, you know, drug and alcohol issues. But the fact that it's very, it's a small number of people not, I don't. I don't think people know that. Like mm. that doesn't seem to be like common knowledge. Mm. I think it's like that that assumption that they've done something to get them in that position. Mm. Where whereas I don't really. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that's the case. No, a lot of the time it's something completely out of their control. So as I said, like I mentioned, domestic violence, and that's one of the biggest causes of homelessness is people fleeing domestic violence. Um, and, yeah, so people being kicked out of home, just dodgy stuff that they don't have control over, like mm. landlords, and loss of employment. Sometimes that's, you know, completely out of someone's control as well. And, yeah, it's it, – it's, I, I don't have the statistics on it's me, fine. unfortunately, but you. you can Google it. It's all good. <laughs> I, I, I trust you. So how did you first get involved in working with people who were homeless and displaced? Is it something you just kind of have always been passionate about? It's not something I've always been passionate about, but it particularly arose for me when I was the queer officer at UNSW. Oh, wow. Um, So at that time, um, I had just been elected queer rep, which again, thinking back to where I was just even two years before, that like seemed so crazy at the time. But anyway, there I was. And over summer, we realized that there were some people who were essentially living in the space. So there was a queer space on campus, which is like a room of um, a room that's just for queer people somewhere they can be themselves, chill out, um, study, have snacks, have a sleep, be safe for a night if they can't go go home or something like that. So, But we found out people were living there on a long-term basis, which is obviously unsafe and unhealthy for them Mm. um and 
and it was not an ideal situation. And unfortunately, those people felt unable to come to us and, you know, their own fellow students and talk about the problem. They were unable to speak to staff at the uni because they didn't trust them either. And unfortunately, in some cases, that's not an un- that's not an unfounded fear. Sometimes if you bring up, oh, I'm experiencing homelessness, I'm sleeping in this space, you'll just get kicked out. Like, they I was going to say, what would they do? Yeah, they might just give you a reference to someone who else who can help, but they might kick you out of this space, which is currently, it's your only roof over your head for the night. Yeah. So I can understand why that might have been the case, but... I also felt like that was really sad that they couldn't feel like they could come go to anyone. So we spoke to, at the time it was two individuals, we spoke to them and helped them to get um, something more permanent. Um, but we also were able to, we also thought that, you know, this is probably something that's happening not just with these two people, but for other people on campus as well. We spoke to some previous queer officers from previous years. It had happened for every single one of them wow. going back as far as we knew. So we thought, okay, it's a systemic thing. We have to create something that will fix this issue. So um, essentially what we did on campus was we negotiated successfully for some crisis accommodation rooms. So some rooms that were available on campus to be rented out by students were actually rented out by the student union on a discounted fee. Mm. And they were there primarily, well, only for people who are experiencing homelessness to then have these rooms that they can access. They were able to get fast-tracked counselling and psychological services and get uh, financial and other support, for example, um, getting support to get on Centrelink and finding employment, all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, we started that off on campus and then after speaking to people from other campuses, realised it was... Yes, a national problem. So we started a national campaign in 2015 as well. Wow. Mm. What was that like to like be a part of something national? Very exciting and also very difficult because it's so hard to get people together from all over the country <laughs> and get them to, um, especially queers, it's like herding cats, <laughs> um, get them to um, especially volunteer Volunteer queer students, so just like this trifecta of like, unfortunately, we couldn't pay people, they're students, so they already have other commitments, they're studying, they're working, they've got other things they've got to do. Um, But it was really exciting at the same time, we were able to be at the forefront of setting up something new. Um, And we've just set up a, uh, last year, uh, a website where students can go and see what their campus has. Um, we've only got a number of campuses at the moment, but we're slowly growing and getting more campuses. We've got national, state and local resources that people can access and, um, references. And the idea is to get posters and flyers out to every campus so that not just the queer space is there, but their, uh, uni counseling and psychological services and other support services on campus can have just a poster or a flyer. So if someone's scared to ask, they'll just be able to pick up the flyer, log on, see what's available, um, And if they, you know, if they are scared to ask, they might kind of have that barrier broken down by seeing a poster and saying, oh, they actually do care about me. They're not going to kick me out. They're not going to turn me away. Mm. So I think that was, that's what we've done to try to stop that kind of situation from arising again. Yeah. I just think, like, I remember when when we first met and you were telling me about this issue, I just didn't know that there were people at university who are also experiencing homelessness. Mm. Like, you just assume that if you're at uni and you're studying you're living somewhere but it just blew my mind like I just felt so I just felt so like naive to that Mm. and I just don't think a lot of people know it's an issue or like know it's happening Mm. well homelessness can happen to anyone at any time and yeah it happens to students and sometimes those students 
Like for me, for example, I that my education was something that I thought was going to help me to pull my bring myself up into an, a better world, be able to do things that I wanted to do with my life. And those students who are experiencing things like domestic violence and homelessness often have to drop out, or they have to, or they have to take you know temp- take a temporary leave from uni. But sometimes they they can't, especially if they are on Centrelink, for example. Stopping your study means. You get kicked off Centrelink for a while while they process your your claims and everything. So sometimes just even as a matter of necessity, you want to stay enrolled. You want to stay going to classes. So, and and actually recently, a lot of, um, last year especially, a lot of information has come out that a lot of international students can experience homelessness as well. Um, And a lot of international housing is really bad, like really poor um, living conditions anyway. But a lot of international students are sleeping in 24-7 libraries, and that's not just to study. That's because sometimes they don't have anywhere to go. Um, And those people have even more reason to not want to drop out because then they get sent back to their home countries. And And I think people – like I think this is an assumption which people shouldn't make is that if you're an international student, you have like a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, it's just not true. Like there are people who are paying their way Mm. and like working two jobs to like just pay their like uni fees. Like, yes, there are people who come from, you know, countries and they're just like very wealthy. Mm. But the fact – like, no, I just don't understand this like idea that everybody who's international is therefore also rich. Yeah, it's not true at all. (laughs) Oh, my God, no. So, like, what can universities do – Right now, I mean, obviously they are, you know, working with you to improve, like improve things. But what else can they do to make a difference? I think, well, even with our project that we set up in our crisis accommodation, unfortunately, the uni, which you know, does have its own limitations on resources, they didn't want to put out advertising that these accommodations are available. And in fact, I spoke to a teacher this year who said that. she, when she had students that were dealing with homelessness, she said, oh, it's, it's such a disappointment that we don't have anything we can do. And I spoke to her afterwards. I was like, we do, though. And she said, are you kidding me? Like, I had no idea. And she, so the, even staff members don't know that some unis have the support services that they have. Um, and the idea is because, the, the idea is that, you know, unis don't want to be swamped and overwhelmed by a lot of applications. They don't want people who don't necessarily need it to be applying, but that requires people essentially to ask, like go to the student union, for example, or go to the uni and ask for help and then be, you know, I guess seen as desirable enough of this that they're then offered it by the uni rather than, you know, a lot of people being too afraid to approach them in the first place, which is what started the campaign. So I think unis need to be able to um, be a bit more forthcoming about what services are available and be able to advertise those a lot more, make sure that they're not just their students, but their staff know about this. Yes, that would be helpful. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think I would encourage all unis to be a bit more forthcoming with um, equity scholarships and things like that. And listening to students um, who are from low ACS backgrounds or other disadvantaged backgrounds when they're thinking about, you know, make, putting forward major decisions or when they're trying to work out how do we get more people from, you know, low ACS backgrounds or other disadvantaged backgrounds into uni, what can we do to support them to actually bring students from those backgrounds into the conversation and not just as as a way to bounce ideas off them, but to actually, you know, s- support them as decision makers as well and give them some share of that decision making power because otherwise it's like just 
listening from some people and then imposing what you think is right rather rather than actually having something that's designed in collaboration with the disadvantaged group. Well, I'm sold. I mean, that's that's perfect. Tell tell every university that. I hope every university is listening. <laughs> oh my god, I wish they were all listening. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot and um, maybe embarrass you, but you've told me that you received a leadership award. Mm-hmm. What did you receive? I received uh, received a few. <laughs> Well, okay. Well, What's this, the most recent one? Okay. Well, this year, slash last year, I was really um, honoured to receive a, um, a, a leadership award from the uh, National Queer Student Network, wow. which is also in tandem with um, the Commonwealth Bank, which is very exciting. Um, and that was an award re- recognising all the work that I've done on homelessness particularly. Um, and But I also received award, an award from my uni, which was from my faculty, Arts and Social Sciences, um, which was a student leadership award for social engagement. And that's for what I've done on w- with homelessness, but also some of my work on campus in some other areas. Um, and I also got a scholarship this year, which is really exciting. Dude. So, yeah. And the reason I say these things is because how amazing is it that a kid who had like a severe social anxiety disorder is now like kicking goals and doing amazing. Exactly. Do you ever just think like I'm the fucking best? <laughs> I you are know. You prou- are you proud of yourself? I'm definitely proud of myself. Yes, I'm very proud of myself, and I think, especially when I think back to where I was coming from, this is what makes me passionate about things that help other people to empower other people to do what they can do. Because without the kind of support that I received, which most people don't get the same kind of support that I received, then imagine all of these all of these other amazing people out there who are being blocked from doing incredible things just because of they haven't received the kind of support they need. Yes. Yeah. I regularly think about the amount of people out there who have so much potential and could be leaders in so many different areas, you know, globally, but the fact that you know, they either are suffering with a mental illness or other physical ailment or anything else is stopping them from actually, like, achieving or grasping on to those opportunities. Like, that just makes me very angry. Because, mm. I mean, you both, like, both uh, you and I, we are white people. We, like, have been given the opportunity to get better and to achieve our goal, like, our dreams and things like that. But, like, for the most part, it's not everybody else. Like, mm. ev- not, most people don't get that opportunity. Mm. That just, like, kills me. It's so sad. Yeah, it's it's one of the reasons I'm really glad that you were even running this podcast. <laughs> I had to. I was like, <laughs> I've got to do it. <laughs> because, yeah, I think that this kind of thing, if, if you didn't have those kind of supports, but you can listen to other people's stories and see, I'm not the only one struggling with this. There's all of these other people who have gone through this stuff and they've gone on to achieve these incredible things. Mm. Like, that would be such an empowering thing to be able to have. So well done, Maddie. Thanks. (laughs) And the thing is, like, you don't have to, you know, be famous or be the top of your field or whatever. Like, if a success for you is just, like, getting a full-time job Mm. and having a nice house in the suburbs and that's what you want to achieve, like, that's amazing as well. Mm. The fact that you don't – not everybody has to be, you know, doing fantastically well in the public eye Mm. to to count as having success – I think that's really important because for most people, that's not what they want. Exactly. They just want like a normal life and like I'm all for supporting that as well. Yeah. Getting to a point where you feel like happy with what you're doing and where you are. Like to me, if everybody could get to that point in their life, I'd just be like, cool, I'm done. I don't need to work (laughs) anymore. I'm happy. I would just sit at home and be like, 
cool. <laughs> I'm happy with the world. Exactly. You know what I mean? Ugh, but we could, that's very people tell me I'm very naive to think that way. But that's okay. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't kind of um, put effort into you know changing the world and achieving things, like it, nothing ever will ever happen. Yeah, you got to dream big. Yeah, exactly. Which is what you're doing. So I guess before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you a few questions in terms of like what you would say to people who are kind of going through similar experiences. Mm-hmm. So I guess the first thing I wanted to ask is what kind of advice would you give to someone who is really struggling with like social anxiety? I think I would, if they haven't seen a professional, I would strongly recommend it because, and, and I know it's not um, entirely accessible for everybody as we've discussed, but I think if you're able to go see someone who's a professional, do it because that was what changed everything for me. As we've kind of mentioned, it was that act of actually putting things down on paper and being accountable to someone and having them help talk me through what I've written down that really helped me to realise the limitations that were that I was putting on my myself with a lot of those thoughts and how irrational a lot of them were mm. and to work out what would be a better way to be thinking, a better way to be feeling and acting when I do feel anxious in those situations. So, and and just being, just thinking about it and just telling someone about it isn't enough is actually going through the act of writing it down every single time you felt that way. Like it really is something transformative. So that's number one. Mm. Number two is um, if you can talk to someone, talk to someone about it, if it's not a professional. Because I think if you have someone who you can trust, who you can bounce these things off, it makes you feel much less like you're in this alone and you'll probably realize that other people are struggling with the similar kind of things to you. Um, but also don't feel like you are some weird alien that, no one, <laughs> that you know, you're probably everyone... <laughs> not an alien. <laughs> you're probably not. I mean, you might be and that's fine. I mean, but... be, you could be Superman. You could be. Who, who knows? <laughs> but yeah, like don't allow yourself to be limited by the the kind of anxiety and the fear that you might be feeling now because what if you want to go out there and change the world and do something you can it, you can do it and you can make even if you as you said if you if you just want to be able to hold a job have a nice place live stress free for the most part you can do it you can do it and it just takes a bit of effort um, and the right kind of support network and you will be able to get there eventually I love that I love that. And secondly, if you are a young queer person who's just coming into uni for the first time, mm-hmm. what would be some advice you'd give in terms of just like staying true to yourself and how to navigate that for the first time, especially if you're coming from a small town? Yeah. Okay. So join your queer collective <laughs> is number one. Usually they like most campuses, not all, unfortunately, but most campuses will have a queer space. Um, and that's somewhere you can actually be and go and be yourself completely, even if you can't be yourself outside of that. Um, if you can't, you know, if you're, if you're, um, not out and you either can't be or you don't want to be out, then it's still a, a place for you to talk to other people who, um, identify as queer, a lot of them who are also not out. And again, just know that you're not alone. Um, learn, I guess, about the history of queer people because that itself is so empowering knowing that we actually have this amazing, like, ridiculously cool history, like modern history and ancient history. I just love queer people. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, look into that. And, um, again, if you do experience any negativity, most universities are pretty, like, they'll have ally networks and other things these days, which is 
um, it's better than not having them. And you can sometimes find teachers you can speak to who'll be really supportive and, and you can get support in other ways from the uni as well. Um, and definitely look like the, the scholarship I got was, um, from the Pinnacle Foundation. I'll do a shout out. Oh, yes, um, do it. Do some they, shout they are a charity, then are not, not an educational institution. Um, and they are a queer, they give, um, scholarships to queer students. Um, so they do it both on equity need and on, um, you know, performance and, and mm. leadership. So if you are someone who, and they, it's, you don't have to be out to get this kind of scholarship. So have a look. There are other, equity supports out there as well scholarships and other things you can get so if you're struggling and you are queer take a look because there are things out there for us as well amazing Mm. dylan you're fantastic you're fantastic no that's been a lot that's (laughs) been a a great 45 minutes or so no seriously thank you so much for coming in and and sharing your story and you're so inspiring thank you so so much thank you and thank you again for being running this amazing podcast um thank you Everyone needs to subscribe. (laughs) Uh, Yes, please. Uh, Bye, guys. Hello, everybody. See, I told you that was going to be a good one. Ugh. I mean, it's really interesting how especially people who haven't experienced homelessness can kind of, you know, have all these preconceived notions but not really know what's going on and, and what's happening in people's lives. So it's amazing that... People like Dylan are really trying to affect change and make a difference in people's lives. Isn't that just the best? Ah, really, I love it. I love positive change. <laughs> uh, guys, as usual, uh, thank you for listening today. I really hoped um, you learnt something or you were inspired by what you heard today. And now, of course, there are lots of ways that you can interact with me and get in touch with me, which I'm going to tell you now. So if you feel like you don't really want to listen to it, that's totally fine. But here we go. Uh, social media. You can find me at If You Don't Mind Podcast. That is my Instagram. If you want to find me on Facebook, just type in If You Don't Mind. Um, on Twitter, I'm If You Don't Mind P which I'm working on. I, I really need to make that a better name. <laughs> it's it's not great. My email is if you don't mind podcast at gmail.com. So if you want to be on the show or you have something interesting you want to share with me, hit me up. That sounds amazing. Let's do it. Guys, as usual, thank you so much for tuning in. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. And again, if you can listen to someone else's story, take the time and listen because it will help you in more ways than you could even imagine. See you later, guys. Bye.